0: OK, that's the programme done and dusted. All perfect, so long as something big doesn't happen on Monday, like Celtic being awarded the title. So football is coming out of lockdown. We've had the first full round of Bundesliga games in Germany since play resumed. And what a weekend it's been particularly For the top three, as they all won Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund and Borussia Mönchengladbach. We'll be reflecting on that in this edition, along with all of the other action that's been happening worldwide. And obviously, there's not been much. Hello again from Will Downing, alongside my fellow Locked Down Football commentators, Mark Rodden, Stefan Jorny, and Dimitro Zulai. So, what have you been watching This weekend, me, it's basically been the Bundesliga. Mark, what have you been seeing?
1: Surprise, surprise, I've been uh, watching football and the Bundesliga, Will. I think everyone's uh, in the same boat and uh, thank God for it as well. Great to have it back. It's obviously a bit strange uh, without supporters, but um, football is football. Most people who enjoy watching it are happy to have something to watch and it could turn into a fairly exciting title race with um, maybe four teams involved
0: now. Excellent. Stefan, has it been football or has it been the special Eurovision concert? Would you
2: believe? I was watching also the Bundesliga. Unbelievable. The uh, Derby and also Antoine Frankfurt, Borussia Mönchengladbach and Bayern Munich uh, today.
0: Happy weekend for me. So, Dimitro, apart from football, have you been watching anything interesting this weekend?
3: <clears throat> yes, I have, but I also watched some interesting football, especially in K-League. On Sunday morning, there was a brilliant game against Suwon. For Sun. they were 2-0 down and scored three in the second half to win it. As for other television on the Spanish national channel uh, my one of my favorite TV series, El Ministerio del Tiempo, now starts its fourth season. The two episodes are out and uh, it's a great watch. And what's it about? A secret ministry of time their agents travel back and forth in time to preserve the history of Spain as it is with all its faults and mistakes.
0: Yeah, apparently it's coming on HBO, so that may see it appear on Sky, also Netflix very soon. Sounds a bit like the time tunnel, which used to be repeated on TV when I was a kid. Uh, Celtic have completed their ninth league title success in a row. They've been confirmed as Scottish champions. Hearts relegated after the SPFL ended the Scottish Premiership season. The decision taken at the board meeting on Monday after all 12 clubs agreed that completing the campaign would be unfeasible. They're topping up the points using average points per game. But Stefan, it is Celtic champions again they had a very strong lead
2: exactly and it's, it's again uh what a performance from uh neil lennon's uh man and uh we thought uh, initially this season they could have been uh, rangers and uh in fact it was a turning point around uh, i think around december when uh, during the old film rangers beat celtic a narrow win and and we thought at the time it's going to be uh definitely Rangers season. And again, Celtic, uh, uh, you know, a formidable uh, second half of the season, even though we know it was stopped, you know, early in March, 13 points ahead of Rangers. And this is a ninth nice, uh, title in a row, which is absolutely unbelievable. And the, the historical uh, title between 1966 and 1974, which, you know, they won nine times in a row, the, the title. So it's it's a rivalry between Rangers and, and Celtic, but, Celtic is way, way ahead and uh, will qualify again for the first preliminary round of the Champions League next season.
0: Yeah, there were 13 points clear of Rangers when the season was finally called. So a bit like Club Bruges in Belgium, you may be disappointed that the season is ending early, but you can't say really that there would be an asterisk there because the lead was formidable. They would not have been caught.
2: No, I, don't, I mean, again, as I say, you know, previously uh, I was covering the game Right before the end of the year, uh, where Rangers uh, went to Celtic Park to, uh, to beat Neil, uh, Neil, Les- Neil Lennon's uh, team two one, Jerry thought that you know it could have been you know Rangers' season with Steven uh, Gerrard doing quite a good job. And uh, but the problem is Rangers was not consistent enough coming back after the uh, uh, the winter break, and Celtic just was too strong. Uh, and especially with Otsenidov on the front, was uh, was absolutely magnificent. And uh, so again, Celtic dominating um, the Scottish football and uh, it's going to be like that for a while, I think. Even though Steven Gerrard had done a magnificent job, but too short again for Rangers to compete uh, with
0: Celtic. So, it's the third time that a club in Scotland has won nine titles in a row. It's now 35 seasons in a row that either Celtic or Rangers have won the title since Dundee United last lifted it in 1985. And from outside... That does not look good.
2: No, it doesn't look good. And you have to remember, Rangers did exactly the same thing between 1989 and 1997, uh, winning nine in a row. And uh, it's not really healthy for Scottish football. Does he make it you know, does he make it competitive as a league? Well, we don't know. Like it's obviously, you can see in Europe, Rangers doing a little bit better than the pre preseason uh, during the campaign, this campaign this year, and uh, the season, or last season, because it's finished now. And Celtic not doing so well in Europa League, disappointed in Europe, even though we used to see a Celtic uh, performing in the Champions League. If you remember that famous win against Barcelona 2-1, uh, Celtic Park, you know, a few years ago. A lot of questions about the competitiveness of the league in Scotland and, uh, and even more worrying like big clubs going down, like Hearts finishing burn on the league and will be able to get it in the second division in championship here in Scotland. And uh, I heard like Andrew, the owner of the club will go to court or at least threat to take legal action against the SPFL.
0: Right, so the Bundesliga has returned in earnest Saturday. The early game, Borussia Dortmund beating Schalke by four goals to nil. Of course, the first goal back in major European football after two months would have to be scored by Erling Haaland. Two further goals either side of halftime from Rafael Guerrero and Torgen Azad as they won the Riviera Derby 4-0 against Schalke. In the evening game, Borussia Mönchengladbach 3-1 winners away at Eintracht Frankfurt. It. And on Sunday, a belter of a game to start off between FC Cologne and Mainz. Cologne 2-0 up with half an hour to go, but Taiwo Arunayi and Pierre Malong with an astounding goal. Solo effort from halfway, uh, tying it up at 2-2. And there could have been many goals after that in the final 20 minutes. And the last game of the weekend, Bayern Munich regaining their four-point lead at the top. 2-0 away at Union Berlin. Robert Lewandowski with a John Aldridge-style penalty late in the first half. That's his 26th of the season, one of his best scoring seasons ever. Uh, Ben Pavard with the wrapper-upper with 11 minutes to go, uh, near post, header from a corner. And Thomas Muller had a goal rightly disallowed by VAR for offside as well. Um, So, Mark, back to the old routine then.
1: Yeah, big tests for German football. Everything, more or less, seems to have gone well. Especially for Borussia Dortmund, that 4 0 win in the Riviera Derby against Schalke. It seems the problem Dortmund had was uh, playing in front of fans because they had only one win from eight against Schalke before uh, the weekend game, but really um, no contest between those two in the end, even though only a couple of uh, places separating them in the table. Disappointing in particular for Marcus uh, Schubert, the young goalkeeper, probably playing in his. Biggest game, made probably a couple of mistakes for the uh, second and third goal. Preferred to Alexander Nübel, who's uh, on his way to Bayern in the summer. So, big call and uh, unfortunately didn't go too well for the uh, visiting keeper on Saturday.
2: Yeah, I agree with Mark. I mean, the keeper made two mistakes clearly uh, during the game. What struck me again during that uh, derby, it's uh, the first 50 minutes. It looked like it was a friendly. I mean, you have to remember, like those guys played last time 66 days ago uh, in the Bundesliga. So I was expecting a bit of slow p-passing and uh, and the players not up to speed, you know, for the first 20 minutes. Uh, But the derby was uh, shut down pretty quickly because, uh, as you, as Mark explained, Allen scored again, the first goal of the game. It was a great cross from uh, Hazard. It was deflected as well at the same time. But clearly Dortmund was a better team uh, on the day. And something was uh, quite interesting as when you're playing behind closed doors, you can hear the players talking to each other, like Tobido the French guy, having a, a go with uh, Alan, And uh, some friendly uh, words from uh, Torbido about uh, Alan's granny, apparently. And the uh, Dortmund was a better team of the day, and despite the behind closed doors, and they are right back uh, behind Bayern Munich. I think they are four points behind at the table, and hopefully uh, they will have a go at Bayern to uh, start the title.
0: You'd feel sorry for Schubert in a big way, but Schalke have been here before with Manuel Norr a few years ago, who you know looked as if he would be a Schalke goalkeeper, a lifer, and then obviously Bayern tempted it away.
1: Yeah, and he's done pretty well since then, hasn't he? It was a choice that uh, David Wagner, the former Huddersfield manager, made to leave uh, Noble out. And uh, Schubert's just 21, played for uh, Dynamo Dresden most of his career, played a handful of games... Um, This season but maybe the occasion got to him and in fairness to uh, Schubert and the Schalke players, Julian Brandt for example said that Dortmund had a slight advantage because they had played a game behind closed doors, the uh, famous one at this stage against PSG when they lost in Paris and he said that helped them prepare for this one. Uh, Roman Burkey, the goalkeeper, said there was a lot of talk beforehand. Listen, this is just like when we were kids; just go out and enjoy yourself, There's no one watching in the stands. But it doesn't change things, and Dortmund certainly looked like uh, they were enjoying themselves, I should say, in that game. And
2: uh, Danny Wagner, after the game, obviously he explained that uh, it was very disappointing to lose a derby, and he also reinforced that it was a very strange, you know, atmosphere at the game because of no one at the in the stadium, but he didn't feel like. Not a friend then, but uh, the first game back after the uh, stoppage, you know, due to the virus. And it was pretty happy, if you want, in terms of the intensity. Uh, being back after 66 days. And I was very surprised we didn't have, you know, as many injuries as expected. On, on my, from my own perspective, I really thought that players uh, could have been in a difficult position uh, after, you know, such a, a long time. Spent on the training ground, and uh, it's difficult for a professional soccer player, especially not be involved with some friendly games, to come back in the, uh, well, for the weekend. And uh, so, a bit of luck as well, but hopefully, hopefully, for the next few weeks, we won't see uh, too many injuries as well and serious ones.
3: Yeah, let me just say something about Chalky because, yeah, I understand uh, they haven't trained properly, probably they had this long layoff, but before the lockdown, if you look at their results, nil-nil against Mainz, 5-0 defeat against Leipzig, 3-0 defeat against Köln. They lost to Bayern München in the quarterfinal of the Cup and drew 1-1 with Hoffenheim. And I remember I was traveling. Yes, it happened sometimes. You know, we were traveling and I had a stopover in Germany. It was just a midweek and they were showing games from the weekend on the German Sky. And it was Schalke v Paderborn. Paderborn It's not the greatest team in the league, and Schalke were at home. And tactically, they were terrible in the first half—absolutely terrible. They did improve in the second. So what I'm saying here: yes, it's unusual, it's empty stadium, but if you look at the way they were playing, at their tactics, it just looked like an amateur side. That's something that amazed me because, yeah, Dortmund—they played a great game, they did what they like doing, but the problem is Schalke didn't do anything to stop them from doing it. Like, for example, Freiburg did to stop Leipzig in their game.
0: And what did you make of the atmosphere or lack thereof? I know some of the grounds, Cologne today, for example, put a whole load of uh, their season ticket holders' shirts on the stand. No, we can't
3: complain about it. That's how it is. We just have to accept it. Unfortunately, that's the way it is now. We can only hope that in the nearest future, and we're talking here about a few months I guess, we'll see fans back in
1: the stands, but right now we just have to accept it. The head of the league, when he announced the uh, return, said that after the first round of games, we'll realise even more that you know football needs fans, but it is what it is. It shouldn't take away from the uh, competitive edge. I think Stefan was saying players were rusty, but that's understandable, but I think after about 15 minutes or so, the players were back up to speed. Certainly Hertha Hoffenheim, a game I watched uh, closely, was really, really physical. Hertha were right at it. New coach Bruno Labadia getting a great reaction from uh, the Hertha players, and they got a great win at Hoffenheim as well to um, ease their uh, lingering relegation worries.
3: By the way, what did you all make about that claim that since a lot of games are played, in these conditions now, well, all all of them <laughs> being played in these conditions now, that's why there was only one home win in the whole round of Bundesliga. Because in second Bundesliga, there wasn't a single away win. I yeah, just, to, you know, prove the point that uh, when you don't have the fans, sometimes you know,
2: some ground. I oh, know Dortmund. Uh it's one of the cases where the, the fans, we can hear them a lot. From other teams, uh, it can make a difference to have your fans. And uh, just to the point, when you play behind closed doors, it's completely a completely different uh, kind of fish. And uh, some teams like Atabelli, for example, or Borussia Mönchengladbach, benefited from it maybe. And it's not easy to win a 3-1 at Antoine Frankfurt. Yeah, close those, we could have some surprise you know, results going forward as well.
1: It depends on the team though as well because Hoffenheim have lost 8 out of 14 at home. I think Hertha are 6 unbeaten away. Same goes for Gladbach, although Eintracht are usually good at home. They lost 3-0 at home to Basel in front of an empty stadium in their last game and Gladbach I think have 7 wins away from home. I think Union Berlin were the big losers. Their whole identity is based on their fans and that certainly would have given them
0: an edge against Bayern. I feel really sorry for Union Berlin. It was their first ever top-flight home game against Bayern Munich. And, I mean, they gave it a really good tilt on Sunday evening. Bayern had the ball in the net after about half an hour, but it was ruled out for offside. But if it had been a full stadium, and it's really small, it's really tight by, you know, top-flight German standards, they really surely would have rattled Bayern a bit more than it did in the end. Do you think so?
3: I
2: think so, yeah. Probably, yeah. And, and you have to remember as well, uh, Will. Um, Bayern Munich, you know, had to change, you know, today, you know, his flight to Berlin because they were initially, uh, the idea was to fly from uh, Munich airport, the VIP section for Munich airport. And the last minute they changed, you know, to Ingolstadt. Uh, it's, it's an airport for the
0: German army. So a bit of change in preparation, but didn't affect basically Bayern. So Stefan, you're not a fan then of playing games in front of empty stadiums? Uh,
2: no, no one is obviously quite a fan to play in empty stadiums because fans are huge part of uh, the the beautiful game, and we all know that. But as we all know, the situation is uh, is what it is, and uh, we have to get on with it. And unfortunately, for some of the uh, small clubs, that can make a difference when you play. You know, some of the major uh, major teams in uh, in Germany, for example, the Bundesliga. When you play against uh, Bayern or Borussia Dortmund, you want to make sure your fans are right behind you, and and put that kind of pressure on the team as well. But that's what it is, unfortunately. And we saw it today with uh, Bayern Munich.
0: Union gave them a really good tilt early on and just couldn't keep it going in the end. It looked ultimately then, Mark, just a bit routine for Bayern, was it? In the second half, certainly.
1: I was about to say, it doesn't matter if there's fans there or not, uh, Bayern are well able to grind out a victory. Obviously, I think it would have made a difference had the fans been there Union uh, would have been uh, pumped up. They've beaten Dortmund, they've beaten Gladbach, they've beaten Hertha at home this season. Bayern just find a way to win these games and uh, helped by a bit of a brain freeze from Neven Sobetic, giving away a penalty. Lewandowski, by the way, one of the players to benefit from and forced break with the uh, coronavirus because he had an injury. He missed, I think, two league games. He's never missed four or more more than four in his 10 years in Germany. Um, So he's now up to 26 league goals for the season, 40 in all competitions. And now, as well as whether Bayern win the title, it will also be about whether Robert Lewandowski can break yet another record. He's uh, gained a couple of games because of the break. Gert Müller scored 40 league goals in 71-72. Lewandowski has eight more matches to get, uh, 14 or more to match or better that feat.
2: What's surprising this, this season, uh, we know, like, they have a new manager, Bayern, but uh, Joan Boateng was struggling a bit at uh, in the season, was in the heart of the defence with David Alaba, who's also a left full. But, you know, I'm surprised Alaba is someone who's, who has evolved, you know, for the last 16 months. He can play as uh, a left-back, but also going forward, he can play, you know, a bit further up on the pitch, and clearly now playing uh, as a centre-back. It's not, you know, a revolution for Bayern, but that player is, is quite, you know, unbelievable. He's quite versatile, which I, I, I couldn't imagine from Alaba, and also Alfonso Davis uh, making uh, his mark as a left back, and uh, so it's quite impressive uh, if you see uh, the Bayern defense today and so a very, very solid.
0: Davies is actually having a, a remarkable season, the young Canadian, and Hansi Flick having come in towards the end of. Uh, 2019, having been Yogi Love's assistant for so many seasons, having been at the German Football Association, then as a the director, all told something like ten years. Bayern have brought him in, and is he sort of the calming influence that they've needed after the short spell in charge for Niko Kovac? Mark,
1: yeah, it seems to be very early on. All the players were praising him and his communication, in particular, the way he talks to the players and explains everything to them very quickly seems to be doing a great job. I think it's 50 goals in 16 Bundesliga games under Flick now. And uh, as Stefan mentioned, he's had to play around a little bit. The likes of uh, Nicolas Sula, Lucas Hernandez have been out injured. So um, Alaba has shifted in. Davies has been a revelation at left-back, has a new contract to show for it. Benjamin Pavar as well, at right-back, has allowed Joshua Kimmich to move into uh, central midfield, more often his favourite position. So they are a real force now, and you have to remember they swept aside Chelsea in the Champions League first leg as well, three three nil away. So, uh, if and when the Champions League is back up and running, Bayern will fancy their chances in that as well. And what struck me as well into that team, it's Alfonso Davis Is you know, if you look at you know his experience in the MLS,
2: was more or less you know attacking player. Uh, sometimes can create things, you know, on the fan can obviously play beyond the striker. And playing as a left-back, it was a big surprise. And he benefited from uh, Luke Anandes' injuries. But you have to keep in mind that Bergen Aflava, sorry, is, 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 is not a right-back. He's, he's, he's a central uh, a defender. There will be like, a lot of competition for places when Hernandez uh, is coming back from injuries because Hernandez by trial, is also a centre-back. So the lot of questions going to reshuffle the team in the back four, but they're doing really well, as you know, Mark mentioned, and uh, especially in Champions League and the league as well now. And uh, it's it's going to be, obviously, Bayern, to me, at the end of the season, will be crowned again.
0: Leipzig were, in a way, the big losers of the weekend, even though they didn't lose. They drew at home with Freiburg, one apiece. Freiburg had gone ahead late in the first half through Manuel Gider, and Leipzig, tying it up through Yusuf Poulsen with 13 minutes to go. They also could have won it in stoppage time and lost it in stoppage time. They fall to fourth. Borussia Mönchengladbach jump up to third after a 3-1 winner Eintracht Frankfurt. A goal after 40 seconds from Alessand Player put them well on the way. Marcus Turam, son of you-know-who, making it two after six minutes. Late penalty from Rami Bansambani made it secure. Andre Silva got a late consolation for Eintracht Frankfurt. So in terms of points, with eight rounds to go, Bayern Munich lead on 58, Borussia Dortmund 54, Borussia Mönchengladbach 52, Leipzig 51, seven points between the top four. Stefan's calling it for Bayern. There'll be a few little speed bumps along the way, though, surely? Yeah,
1: I think a lot will be uh, dependent on the big game between Dortmund and Bayern on Tuesday, 26th of May. So Bayern host Eintracht Frankfurt next, Dortmund away at Wolfsburg. If both teams manage to win that game or those uh, fixtures, that is going to be a huge game and Dortmund have to go to Leipzig as well so they don't have the easiest run in themselves. But, you know, can you rule out someone like Gladbach as well? Maybe making a, a late charge, getting a, a run
0: of wins together as well. It could be uh, very exciting because the games are coming thick and fast as well. Meanwhile, Mark, proof over the weekend that romance isn't dead in football but maybe not quite the right kind of romance.
1: Yeah, it depends. There were uh, some comments made about Hertha Berlin's celebrations. Veda was. Uh, hugged after he got the second goal. Then the uh, pictures emerged of Dedrick Boyata appearing to kiss Marco Grujic, presumably after one of the goals as well. But uh, the Belgian press first reported that uh, it wasn't a kiss and it didn't happen after a goal. And uh, Boyata has proved it on Instagram today. He came out to show that incident in question happened at a corner and Boyata was just given advice in the ear of his teammate ahead of the set piece I mean there's social distancing but then there's competitive football as well and uh, there's emotion as well that's what Obisovic said afterwards he said I was delighted to score a goal it had been a while and uh, I'm not a robot so um, you have to let us celebrate as well was the uh, was the main message
0: yeah there was a tasty old tackle late on in wasn't it the Union against Bayern Munich game as well That's left a couple of bodies on the deck with a couple of minutes left. I mean, they're not going to pull out. And as we heard from Osmar Abanias the other week with FC Seoul, you will forget during a game about the new rules, the new measures, the new suggestions, because if there's a game on, it's a competitive game, the natural instincts will still come through. No,
3: and actually this week in K-League, players were hugging each other after goals. It was all fine. They were celebrating, touching each other, and referees didn't do much about it. So... Apparently, there might be some change in the understanding of uh, that particular behaviour. I don't know, but Radamel Falcao wrote on Twitter that he doesn't understand why they're not allowed to touch a teammate when he scored a goal when there is so much going in the box, when there is a corner or a free kick.
0: The noticeable thing uh, in the Bundesliga over the weekend was these little elbow hops, which they were doing. But was there not a suggestion from the world health organization about three or four months ago don't do that either because you'll spread germs that way too
2: well you we can't control everything on the pitch unfortunately i mean the players are human like anyone and yeah surely they will breach, you know some of the uh, the rules you know has been implemented at bundesliga and uh, recommended to the players but like peter Bowles from uh Barry leverkusen the ex uh ix manager explained that next time the et- building players will have to make sure they don't do it again i'm sure they will understand that but unfortunately, there will be uh, things like that happening on the pitch, you know, for the next you know, few weeks. And players are just humans. And uh, you talk about, you know, tackles and uh, social distances, you know, corner kicks and free kicks. It's not possible. And players, you know, they, they, they're competitive. They're competitive games. There's points, you know, to be earned. And there's qualifications, you know, to get for your Europe next season. So it's going to be full on. And uh, hopefully, testing won't reveal any more positive
3: case uh, among the players for the next you know, few days. I don't know if we should mention the second Bundesliga because there were quite a few interesting games in there. And it's interesting that out of the top six, not a single team won. Even though we got quite fifth in Hamburg, they played each other, so they drew. But Armenia, the league leaders, they had a derby against Osnabrück at home and they considered to late. Equalizer Stuttgart lost. And Heidenheim got bitten 3-0 away to Bochum. So even though Armenia Bielefeld has that advantage, it's going to be very interesting because you probably would expect that Stuttgart in Hamburg with their history would walk over in that league, but it doesn't seem like
1: that. You mentioned the, uh, the top three. They all conceded in injury time. So they all drop points late on. It's amazing the Hamburg like is still struggling to uh, get
2: back up in the Bundesliga. It's such a big club in Germany. And uh, to see them in the second
1: division is pretty sad, I have to say. Like. Not if you're a Sam Pauli fan, Stefan.
0: Yeah, but it's remarkable. Like, Even in the late noughties, when Martin Jol was there, they were still competitive. They were still knocking around the top six. And they've just had carnage, chaos since then, in the past decade. And I mean, Hertha Berlin were like that, you know, late noughties, early teens when they were up and down. But at least they've got their stability and they've become reliable-ish.
1: Yeah, Hamburg were Europa League semi-finalists, I think, not so long ago, but they had a few bad years, got a bit lucky maybe on occasion, and finally went down for the first time, and Bundesliga 2 is a really tough league to come out of, because um, it's big crowds everywhere you go, there's no real easy matches in that division, quite competitive at both ends, with uh, three teams having a chance to go up, and three teams in danger of going down in an 18-team league. So pretty much uh, every team has uh, something to play for all the way through the season. So it's, uh, it's really tough and Hamburg have already failed uh, to bounce back straight away. Stuttgart finding it tough this time as well. So it's not a league you want to end up in
0: unless you've been promoted to it. So, Dimitri, you've been busy watching the K-League this weekend. Ulsan and Jean-Buc have won again. And the only two teams after the first two rounds have won their first two games with 100% records.
3: Yeah, that's what is expected, more or less, in the league. Uh, Ulsan were brilliant in the first round, winning 4-0. And in this round, you could see that Suvon, the opponents, prepared really well. They put him under pressure. They knew how Ulsan would be coming out of defence trying to cut those ties and they were successful. They had a good goal in the first half. Now there wasn't much uh, to talk about offensively in that. And then they scored early in the second and then they decided that's it. We probably won the game and that let uh, Ulsan back into the game and and they scored three goals. Uh, Late winner with a deflected free kick from Junior Nigao, who had four in the first two. But to me, it was probably the game of the weekend, it had everything from the tactical point of view and all those goals and emotions. And also, last week when we were talking about the first round of fixtures, I started saying that I liked how Sanjus Sanmu, the Army team, played. And I was like, but they lost 4-0. But yeah, I should have insisted on that because in this round they had their home win they want to nil playing some good football. And what is interesting about that, there is a hill just beside the stadium. There were people sitting on it and watching the game, even though they were wearing masks. But they're still, you know, not at the social distance and watching a game of football from outside the stadium.
0: Yeah, I saw a video from the Faroe Islands over the weekend where, I mean, the stands, such as they are, were... Full, basically, but then they've had no deaths in the Faroe Islands and they look like they've pretty much come down from lockdown. The football's underway there. Seoul, in their huge stadium, beat Gwangju by a goal to nil. Han Chan-hee scoring midway through the second half. So at least they're mid-table and at least they've now won a game.
3: Yeah, that was a great goal. Uh, They tried hard to break their opponents down, but Gwangju just came to defend. So Seoul had their problems and actually Osmar wrote me after the game that they still lack that match practice and they still lack some sharpness and they need more tactical preparation otherwise they will suffer during the season but it was very important to get that first win
0: and just like FC Seoul another of our correspondents from last week from Claxfair suffered defeat in their opening game but Clacksphere winning 2-1 away at TB Tavori so they go into mid-table, B36. It's the same situation, B36 and HB, sweet. Not a vanilla side at all. Hafnar, bolt for lag. They've played two and one two. They're joint top of the table. And obviously, they're still going out live in Norway. And they're making a bit of progress there anyway, Dimitri.
3: Well, apparently a late winner for KI in their game. It was a 1-1 draw, so the defending champions could have only one point out of six they got a penalty, a late penalty, and they converted it and won.
0: And we've just learned, by the way, Stefan, today, the passing of Gérald Houllier's long-term right-hand man.
2: Yes, sad news in France. Jacques Roisier passed away today. Uh, he was 72. Gérald was assistant at Liverpool, but also uh, worked for the uh, under-19th national team. Uh, he won the Euro in uh, 2000 with Thierry Henry and David Trezeg in the squad when he was the assistant of Gérald it's really, really sad news and he was a great coach and I uh, really think of the game and uh, Jean Royer took him under his wing in uh, Liverpool and he was assistant when Liverpool won uh, the treble with the Europa League, the Cup and the uh, League Cup in England. So really sad to see him go. He was so young, 72, still a young age and, uh, and a lot to offer to football and sad news for France and for uh, presumably Jean Royer, very, very sad you know, today that uh, the passing of Jacques Croisier.
0: We're going to turn the clock back to one particular date. 25th of June, 1990, and for quite a sizable audience, TG Cahar and Friday night, they saw Ireland against Romania. Probably from an Irish point of view, the most exciting 0-0 draw there's ever been because obviously it went to penalties, 5-4 against Romania. Shidi, Houghton, Townsend and Cascarino scoring for Ireland. Haji, Lupa Rotario, Lupescu for Romania. Daniel Tomofte had his fifth penalty kick for Romania, famously saved by Pat Bonner. David O'Leary stepped up and all those years of frustration of not being in the Ireland team finally put to bed. He scored the winning spot kick. Ireland threw to the quarterfinals the following Saturday against Italy at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome. Teeing up three, four magnificent days of football because almost every game played in that second round of the 1990 World Cup had so many memories attached to them. But Mark, from an Irish point of view, it all came down to one kick and one man.
1: Yeah, everyone remembers where they were for that. You tell. Growing up, well, <laughs> I was i was in my house, but growing up, the local station was uh, Kilbarak train station. And for years, for 25 years or so, there was a brilliant m- mural of Paki Bonner saving Timofte's penalty, which wasn't actually the winning moment because David O'Leary coming in from the, from the cold, just replacing um, Steve Staunton. He'd only been on the field a few minutes coolest man on the planet taking that penalty made it look so easy a hero um, forever along with Bonner in Ireland a pretty good effort by that Irish team to get through that it was 30 degrees in Genoa 55% humidity and Georgi Hadji was amazing for Romania just couldn't hit the target often enough but he did everything else and then he moved to Real Madrid that summer I think as well so great to watch and great memories as well
0: I mean, it was a Romania squad that didn't really hit their prime probably until four years after that. As for me, I remember my local juvenile GAA team, St. Olivers, were in a Western final that evening. And obviously, it went to extra time and penalties. And nobody was going to that game until the match was over. And by that stage, we were talking about something like 6.45 in the evening or something like that. And I don't know if you remember, but the penalty sheet ended up being simulcast on both channels. They cut into the main evening news to show the shootout. And obviously, nobody was watching the news because everybody was watching the shootout by that stage. And I think our game, the juvenile match, a big local final ended up throwing in maybe an hour late because of it because nobody was going to go until, obviously, the Ireland match was over in Genoa. And if you can imagine a bunch of 14-, 13-year-olds in a minibus travelling 10 miles to Capacuin for a big local final magnificent atmosphere it was unfortunate for Hadji Silvio Lung was actually a terrific goalkeeper in his own right but ultimately conceded all the penalties came very close to saving one or two as well though
1: not as close as Packy Bonner though who went the right way for everyone and uh, that's the Bucharest team where most of the uh, Romanian players uh, were drawn from plenty of experience European Cup winners plenty of experience of uh, penalty shootouts as well and you have to feel for the the man who missed Daniel Timofte the famous story is that he changed his mind he was told that Bonner uh, wasn't really diving too well and Timofte was told listen you're a regular penalty taker I know you always go down the middle but maybe you should change it for this one forever remembered for that penalty miss he set up a bar in his hometown known as Penalty to try and get over it you know he was interviewed for the 25th anniversary and it seems to have Really affected him. He had some bad injuries as well. Injured right before the 1994 World Cup. So missed out on that uh, great run that Romania had in that tournament. Um, So you have to feel for him. But a really high quality penalty shootout apart from that. And apart from Tony Cascarino's penalty that was scored just before that. And Timofte also blamed. Said there was a massive hole (laughs) because of the divot that Cascarino had created. And it made it more difficult for him right after.
2: Yeah, but uh, just looking back to the game, uh, when you look at the squad, I mean, we all know about the Irish uh, team, but uh, for Romania, Popescu, a classy player, and Aji, obviously, a maestro in the middle of the park, Popescu, Renich, and uh, if you remember the front, Radusuyu, which is absolutely an exceptional player. And uh, it's a surprise that Alan qualify. you know, went to Pedros and Romania, couldn't finish the job during the uh, 90 minutes, and had to do two to extra times. But I have to say, the first penalties in the penalty shootout, you know, quite important. If you remember... Uh, Shity and uh, Aji taking the, of the penalties and what struck me was a the, confidence they the way like if you look at those two penalties they're all you know important you know to score and they went for it and that you know was quite impressive but after that we all know that uh, Paki Bonner saved the penalty from uh, Timofte but O'Leary scoring the uh, winning penalty and knowing that he didn't have you know a very good relationship with Jackie Charlton and the hero with Paki Bonner on the day.
0: It says a lot, though, that we've gone straight to the penalty shootout and not mentioned the previous 120 minutes. But then I suppose there really wasn't that much reporter in the first place.
1: There was Georgi Hadji, and, and there was Packy Bonner. In fairness, he made a couple of really good saves. Well, Hadji was amazing. There was one moment he lost the ball in midfield, then won it back, and was then fouled. You know, he did everything. He did absolutely everything in that game. So hard to predict because he was so good off both feet. Story goes that he wasn't allowed to leave Romania. Because Ceausescu wouldn't let many of the players leave, obviously, around that time. And then December eighty-nine, right before that World Cup, the whole thing changes. And perhaps no surprise then that a few of those Romanian players leave and they go on to be such an entertaining and, and really great
0: addition to the 94 World Cup as well. And remember, they were in France 98 as well. They had the game where they all dyed their hair blonde, which I'm sure would have been a commentary nightmare. But a lot of fun. Apparently, Jimmy Hill said it was exactly the right thing to do. And Dimitro, I mean, it was a terrific Romanian leap, I suppose, in quality, because they hadn't qualified for anything for quite a number of years, as we were mentioning last week. It also meant that there were four games that Ireland had played and had only found the net twice in those four games, plus extra time. It was
3: indeed a fantastic Romanian generation, and when Mark mentions uh, that, yeah, they weren't allowed to leave the country, it reminds me of Nicolae Dobrin, who probably before George Hadzi was probably one of the most exciting Romanian footballers ever. He played for Argus Petesti, he played for Steaua, Dinamo Bucharest, but they won the title and they were drawn against Real Madrid in the European Cup. And I think it was when Santiago Bernabeu was the president of Real Madrid. So Audis comes uh, to Bernabeu we play there. And Bernabeu says, I want to sign this guy. And of course, he was told that it was impossible. That Ceaușescu would personally uh, tell him where to go if he uh, tried to sign uh, Nicolai de Brin. That generation came when Stiaua won the European Cup on penalties against Barcelona, <laughs> Helmut Ducadam, the hero. But that penalty shootout, 94, when they were in the quarterfinal of the World Cup, then 96, they played European Championship, 98, the game that you mentioned. And they, they still played the 2000, the European Championship. that They lost to Italy, I think, in the quarterfinal. And it was still an important year for them because I think Popescu and Haji were with Galatasaray, who won the FA Cup. In 2000, beating on Arsenal penalties. on penalties <laughs> again. So it's a recurrent theme for, for some of the Romanian players. In that generation, when, when you think about it, yeah, they were lucky that they had the chance to go and play abroad because they had, well, Haji, he played for Madrid and Barcelona. Popescu played for Barcelona as well. Reduccio came to England and played for West Ham, I think. Yes, he was with them for a bit. So they did go and played abroad, something that all the good players from Romania could only dream about twenty years before, fifteen years before. And as for Ireland, well by that stage I think Jackie Charlton's team knew how to get a result against any opponent. So it was 30 degrees or whatever, it was humid, it was difficult. You had one of the best players at that moment in the world in the uh, opposing team. It didn't matter. And I it, think, you know, Georgie, if
2: you remember, I mean, at everything, he was, you know, it's a big, you know, physical player, but, you know, his dribbling technique, vision, but also his quick thinking on the pitch. He could do everything. And uh, it's no not surprising he went to Real. But you have to remember his nicknames as well. He was called, you know, the commander uh, in Galatasaray. He also called the king by the Romanian supporters. But, you know, his nickname, like, I mean, I remember, is the Maradona of the uh, Carpathians. I mean, that speaks volume to me. Just being called Maradona, you know, just put the point that he was absolutely a magnificent player. And he was tremendous. And he had this huge impact was you see the selection but at the club level as well with Real but especially with Galatasaray as well
1: linked to that as well a statement of how good he was in general but also in that game John Aldridge was speaking about this recently in a documentary about that uh, Irish time Irish period he wasn't getting any of the ball Romania started really well Hadji was running the show Aldo says I need to do something here so the striker just kicks Hadji, and it's an awful challenge. Could easily have been a red card, probably would be in this day and age. And although kind of said, "Geez, you know, I took a risk there. Like, I could have left the team with uh, 10 men for the last 70 minutes. In the end, Hadji, as he did so often in that game after being roughly handled by an Irish player, dusts himself down, gets up, ready to go again. Aldridge had to go off after 22 minutes straight away, hurt himself in that tackle, tells you how uh, steely Georgie Hadji was, but also Ireland, or teams in general, only had two substitutions back then, so Aldridge took a huge risk making that challenge, and maybe it was fate because Cascarino came on to replace him, and despite not wanting to take a penalty, apparently did manage to squeeze his penalty home in the shootout. David O'Leary as well came on after 90 minutes, I think, and scored a
2: winning penalty. Again, great performance for the Republic of Ireland, and and I think maybe you can
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but that was, you know, the first time Ireland reached a quarter final of the World Cup. Mainly because it was the first time Ireland were in the World Cup, so you're absolutely right. O'Leary wasn't noticed for his penalties though. That was the thing. He like he was never on the list in Arsenal, for example. They didn't really have penalty shootouts in the English club game then. And English clubs, apart from we'll say Tottenham beating Anderlecht in eighty four and Liverpool doing the same in the European Cup final. English clubs really were notorious for not being very good at a penalty shootout. So it's remarkable that a whole series of English club players would be five from five.
1: And as well, we were second to take the penalties, which is supposedly, you know, you you have less of a chance of winning, historically or statistically. But a couple of things. What confidence for O'Leary, just reading back on a few of the interviews that some of the players did A few people said, you know, he he wanted the fifth penalty. He said, i will take a penalty, but I'm taking number five, which reminds me of, you know, watching England-Argentina, 98 World Cup was shown there recently, and you had David Batty taking England's fifth decisive penalty. What was that about? The other thing was, apparently, the Irish players, over the couple of weeks, were uh, egging each other on in training, having a little bet on penalties, at the end of training, so they actually got loads of practice in, and uh, that was obviously a big advantage to them and to uh, Packy Bonner, especially, who had plenty of time to to practice his technique. Talked with Jerry Payton a lot about that. Discussed actually as well just once he saw Timofte going with that short angled run up, he knew exactly which way he was going to dive because he'd discussed technique and tactics in detail before that game.
0: Actually, that England-Argentina game that you mentioned from 98, it was on BBC Red Button today and I watched it. David Batty did a really peculiarly eloquent interview after the match where he said, you know, it was his duty to take a penalty, he was sure he was going to score, and he didn't. But it was remarkable that, you know, so soon after the final whistle that he would do an interview, England having been knocked out of the World Cup, having had a really good tilt at Argentina. Again, there's so many things about that game you forget – The shocking thing for me was that, obviously, Javier Zanetti was playing in it, and I've commentated on him. And it was that long ago, and his career obviously was that long. Ireland went absolutely berserk off the back of that, because it was Ireland through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup. It was something scarcely thought possible. And I remember there were a couple of stamps brought out in advance of the World Cup, and one of them was, you know, a drawing of Ireland playing against Italy. And that could only happen in the late knockout stages, I remember saying in the news, well, chance would be a fine thing. And of course, ultimately it did. We'll talk about that next week or the week after when it's shown on television. But the country went crazy in a way that Stephen Roach winning, we'll say, the Tour de France, John Tracy winning Olympic silver medal, Eamon Coughlin winning the world athletics title. Up there with three or four times in a decade that a country will achieve something like that.
1: Yeah, it was a real coming of age internationally for the country, you know, credited with um, helping us kick on economically as well but it was already huge that we got to that stage Mick McCarthy in his book said it was like Lansdowne Road that game in Genoa it was just a massive party for the fans and I'm sure that helped we've talked a lot about uh, ghost games and fans not being in the, in the ground but you know it was 10 to 1 according to Mick McCarthy in terms of uh, the ratio Irish fans to Romanians you know what better way to celebrate for the Irish players than to go off and visit the Pope a few days later as well
0: Probably economic reasons for that as well, considering what had happened with Romania and they generally weren't allowed to travel and they'd only had about six months of an open country by that stage. But it was extraordinary that things just seemed to fall for Jack Charlton quite perfectly and for the Ireland team, even though you know they weren't noted at that level, despite the very successful qualifiers, they weren't noted at that level as being you know a high scoring team and for many not particularly an entertaining team but effective.
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, the replica Ireland was surfing from the year 1988. Jackie Charlton was capitalising in the squad. And I think Mark, you know, touched base on the panels and practising and, and stuff like that. But it's, it's a different thing, you know, the training, se- you know, the training session, taking panels and, and, and trying, you know, to score. And you have to remind those players also, you know, at 90 minutes was, uh, you know, it was very hot on the day and they had extra time. So it's difficult as well with the pressure and the tiredness. And to, to score five penals, and uh, and it's down to obviously Paki to save the uh, you know the one from Timofte. But again, as I mentioned, you know, initially, the confidence of the Irish players to take those penals is quite, you know, unbelievable.
0: And it culminated one of the most incredible weeks of football, not even a week, half a week, because Saturday, Roger Miller dispossesses Rene Aguita, Cameroon come from behind to beat Colombia 2-1. On the Sunday, the first original Super Sunday, Brazil nil, Argentina one. That could fill a few hours by itself. Followed immediately by West Germany two, Netherlands one. Red cards aplenty. That could fill a couple of hours all by itself. And then the day after Ireland's win over Romania on penalties on Monday, David Platt scoring in the last minute against Belgium to send England into the quarterfinals. Spain losing on penalties to Yugoslavia. I don't think I can remember a more intense, more incredible couple of days of football than that, no matter what.
2: Yeah, I agree with you, Will, because you, uh, usually when you come to the and uh, the last 16, uh, the semis, the games are pretty tight because you want to go as far as you can in the competition. And strangely enough, there were goals being scored, like Czechoslovakia against Costa Rica, five goals, Cameroon against Colombia, three goals after extra times. And that was quite entertaining. The only uh, games we did have any uh, any score was Ireland against Romania, but the rest, you know, at least teams, you know, tried to score goals. I just feel you know, beg your pardon, England against Belgium, you know, after extra times, you know, Platt scored the uh, the winning goal. But I think it was quite entertaining at that stage of the competition because remember nineteen ninety, very you know, a little goals been scored during the uh, the competition, but the
3: last sixteen provided, you know, excitement and goals as well. Well again, we, we we'd have to stay here for another hour talking about those games because for Yugoslavia, it was the last dance, the very last tournament they played together. And the country was already disintegrating at the time. They still managed to get into the quarterfinals. And again, they only lost in penalties to Argentina. So you never know what could have happened if they had beaten Argentina in that quarterfinal. Also, if we talk about Argentina and Brazil, God, there was a special game. There was from that bottle they gave to Branco, it was marked specifically for him. And they told Argentinian players, don't drink from that one. That's for the Brazilians. And that's true. Oscar Rogeri confirmed it, and he was so happy that they did it because it was against Brazil. And Brazil had a post, I think, a couple of times in that game. It was very difficult for Argentina. And then there was Maradona. Dribbling and keeping the ball. And Caniche was telling so many years later so that I'm running there, I'm on my own, and I'm just saying, Son of the bitch, just give me the ball, just give me the ball. And then Maradona told him, Do you think I didn't see you? I was just waiting for the perfect moment. And he, he gave it to Caniche, and he scored that goal against Brazil. Then you had the emotions of Cameroon v Colombia. Because Cameroon was the team of the tournament for for so many people. And and Colombia had a fantastic side. They played such a great football. They beat Argentina 5-0 in the the next qualifying campaign for the 94 World Cup. But even in the 90s, they had a great team. And Paco Maturana, who was the manager, asked his players after the game, because they were 2-1 down and they still tried to play their usual passing game. And he asked them just why didn't you just kick it forward? And it's because you t- you taught us not to. So th- there are so many stories about the World Cup, honestly. Probably Uruguay didn't have much <laughs> to remember in that because they lost to Italy easily in the round of 16. But Oscar Washington Tavares was the manager, still the manager. Uh, he because returned and he won the Copa America with them, And the tournament that stays with you after so many years, even though yeah, a lot of people say... Some games were boring and goalless. But and then David Platt turned
1: and shot. It's also something special. We nearly forgot about West Germany and the Netherlands. Rudy Waller, Frank Reichardt, Red Cards. No,
3: there was another class. Yeah, and then and uh, the Rudy Voller and Frank Reichardt, uh, <laughs> this bad. It was, it was all over uh, the papers in the world. So it, it was terrific, also.
0: It was also all over their hair. <laughs> Oh, yeah.
3: Because he had some.
0: <laughs> yes. But I mean, that was after 20 minutes and then the goals start coming in the second half. And I mean, I remember at the end of the day, there was a, you know maybe a little bit of disappointment that, you know, the Germany-Netherlands game had had that nasty undercurrent in it and that Argentina-Brazil wasn't the open, free-flowing game of football that you know, people outside of South America so naively thought that it would be. But you think back on it now, and it's like, that is one of my most favourite days of football ever. Ever, ever, ever.
3: Argentina were managed by Bilardo. Just wanted to want from him. Free-flowing football. You had Sebastiano Lazzaroni trying to get Brazil playing what they thought was European model, which was absolutely terrible, honestly. But Bilardo... Coming to the World Cup after having won it four years previously wouldn't have changed a bit. I mean, he even had a friendly against Israel again, just like he had before the Mexican World Cup. Just because they won it in 86, he, had, he said we have to play Israel before the Italy World Cup. So now it was, it, was, it was a classic and perfect Brazil-Argentina at that particular time.
0: Excellent as always. Thank you very much, gentlemen. We'll be back probably next week sometime. So until then, please like us, subscribe, etc, etc, etc. And for me, Will Downing, Dimitri July, Stefan Johnny, Mark Rodden. Until next time, with football back, it's goodbye.